0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turable land. Today, more evidence ultra-processed foods put your health at risk. Do they need warning labels? a musical remedy for pain in emergency departments.
1: Plus, should state governments really promise more hospitals in order to get re-elected? Or is there a better way to spend billions of healthcare dollars? And the sad news over the last few days that rugby league legend Paul Green, who died by suicide in August, had the signs of severe chronic traumatic encephalopathy in his brain a diagnosis that can only be made after someone has died. It's a condition that's been controversial and there's a lot more to know about it and, for example, how bad knocks on the head have to be to cause it. The person who made Paul Green's diagnosis was Associate Professor Michael Buckland, who's Head of the Department of Neuropathology at Royal Prince Albert Hospital in Sydney and Director of the Australian Sports Brain Bank. Welcome to The Health Report, Michael. Uh, thanks for having me on, Norman. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a very specific set of brain abnormalities because you get one of the proteins that are associated with dementia, not amyloid, but the other one gathering in the brain as well as loss of nerve cells.
2: Yes, that's correct. It's it's actually defined pathologically. Uh, and that is, as you said, it's the ab, a, accumulation of abnormally phosphorylated tau, um, which is located in specific regions around blood vessels, and that really is what defines CTE.
1: Why can't it be diagnosed during life? If it's very specific, why can't it see a brain scan diagnose it?
2: I think we're working towards that. I think probably it's important to realise really, theoretically, any neurodegenerative disease cannot be properly diagnosed without examination of the brain after death. Now, say with Alzheimer's disease, we've had decades of re- of clinical research and validation of sort of clinical criteria to sort of refine that clinical diagnosis, so now it's it's relatively accurate. But we've only just started to do that with CTE, so we're sort of you know thirty years behind the clinical criteria for for CTE.
1: Now, until recently, in fact, even now, it's it's a it's a diagnosis of association. So you you find somebody who was, say, uh, a, field, a soldier on the field who, got, who, who was involved with um, explosions and got you know, neurotrauma that way, or on the sports field. Um, and you, you find the CTE later on in life. But people have said, well, well, you know, that's association, it's not cause and effect. But you've recently published a paper which, with an international group of researchers which suggests you can be pretty sure it is cause and effect. In other words, the head injuries that you get in certain sports and CTE.
2: Yes, that's right. Uh, Causation is, um, I think, is actually, in any complex disease, causation can be uh, incredibly difficult to define with 100% certainty. And uh, I think that's uh, something that uh, we saw with smoking and causing lung cancer. And, in fact, we recently, as you said, published uh, an assessment of the evidence using the Bradford Hill criteria, which are criteria developed by one of the pioneers of, of this uh, epidemiology of smoking and lung cancer. And uh, it was very obvious that in fact, all of the nine criteria that were laid out were, were more, than, more than fully you know, fulfilled with CTE and repetitive head impacts.
1: No, but even the syndrome varies. In other words, the symptoms that somebody gets
2: Yes, that's right. Uh, So certainly there is a preclinical phase, just as there is in, say, Alzheimer's disease. And one of the differences, I guess, with CTE versus Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's, we know, starts in very specific locations of the brain and spreads in a very stereotypical fashion through the brain. CTE can start anywhere in your frontal or temporal cortex, sometimes your parietal cortex. In other words, cortex. the
1: front or the side of the brain.
2: That's right. So it's, it's probably that because of the variability of where it starts, leads to the variability of the presenting clinical symptoms.
1: And to summarize those, it can be depression, it could be forms of dementia, trouble with language, trouble with behavior.
2: That's correct. Uh, it's um, often there are behavioral mood disorders that that start that then progress into difficulties with thinking and difficulties with concentrating
1: and planning. Paul Green took his own life. It, it, and we've seen suicidality in people who've returned from Afghanistan and Iraq and have been exposed to neurotrauma. Do we know the incidence, how strong the association is?
2: Between suicidality and, and CTE? CTE yes. Uh, so that is, a, that is a red hot topic at the moment. Uh, Obviously, the only way we get people's brains is once they pass away. And certainly in in that age group of of sort of young to middle age, suicide is uh, one of the more common causes of death. So there is that sort of ascertainment bias there. But certainly from our experience, out of the first three years of our brain bank operations, um, half the people we diagnosed with CTE uh, had taken their own life.
1: Now, there's been a change to concussion rules, and but, I mean, but that presumes that that's going to prevent the problem. Do we know mm. how severe the head injury has to be? It's been associated with heading the ball at soccer. Some people say it's repeated minor trauma. Maybe the concussion rules could make a difference. I mean, is it a hope and a prayer that concussion rules will make a difference?
2: Um, there's no doubt that good management of concussion is important for uh, prevention of you know, long-term consequences such as persistent post-concussion syndrome. But there's no evidence that good management of concussion will reduce your likelihood of getting CTE. The evidence to date indicates that it's not just the concussions, but it's lots and lots of other hits to the head that don't cause uh, symptoms, uh, but all, but probably doing microscopic damage to the brain, and it's likely that someone would have thousands of these if they were a very keen sports person, uh, and it may well be that you know you need a few thousand to really elevate your risk of CTE. So no, I think. It, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no
1: sorry. Right. I just we're running out of time. There's a couple of things I want to get through. I mean, what about game rule changes? I mean, netball was a gift to knee surgeons. Um, and they, they allowed netballers to take another couple of steps. I could have got that slightly wrong, but it reduced the rate of knee injury. Some people say that better coaching um, for, of, of school boys in, say, rugby might actually prevent uh, knee arthritis later in life. Do we know if there's rule changes that could change the nature of those sports to stop those thousands of injuries?
2: I think there's a few simple things you could do straight up. The obvious one is to reduce the amount of full contact training there is. You could halve your cumulative exposure to these impacts just by changing rules in practice. Uh, Another thing that's been proposed is um, reducing the the, the kickoff and how far away each team is at the kickoff. If you can halve the distance these uh, people run at each other, you're going to significantly reduce the force when they collide.
1: And finally, and this is an awkward point to bring up, but just very briefly, there's been um, the British Medical Journal's withdrawn a whole series of articles on concussion and sport by Dr. Paul McCrory, um, from British Journal of Sports Medicine and the British Medical Journal. Has that had any impact? When you look at what he published, is there, does it change the story with concussion and concussion rules?
2: Oh, I think it does. Um we yet to see the results of some of those investigations. I understand the AFL has an independent review into Dr. McCrory's uh, advice. Uh, he's been hugely influential in talking about the lack of evidence for CTE and uh, head impacts. And I think that's something that's going to play out in the next six months or so. it would be, be very interesting to see.
1: We'll watch closely. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Associate Professor Michael Buckland is head of the Department of Neuropathology at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and director of the Australian Sports Brain Bank. And this is The Health Report. The Victorian state election is on the 26th of November with hospitals front and centre of the battlefield. State labour has promised more than six billion dollars on building new hospitals and upgrading existing ones. Some are regional, but a lot of the money is going into Melbourne, including a massive project in North Melbourne involving the Royal Melbourne and Royal Women's Hospitals. Why should you care if you don't live in Victoria? Well, it's what usually happens in state election campaigns, and while Australia has gone through a massive period of hospital building in the last decade or so, the headline lines about emergency department bed block and ambulance ramping have barely changed. And post-COVID, the health workforce is stressed and stretched, even covering the existing hospitals. I've looked at the policy commitments on both sides in Victoria, and it's hard to see significant investments in community-based care, which could alleviate demand on our hospitals. We've invited the Victorian health minister and the shadow minister onto the health report on several occasions, but not had any reply. But just before we came on air, the premier's office replied with links to their policies and, and, and promises. So I'll read, the, I'll read them out very briefly. Um, this is, you know, biggest hospital project in Australia's history. Make it free study, nursing and midwifery. Wif- wif- COVID catch plan. Um, public fertility care for more Victorian families, a new hospital for West Gippsland, uh, a bigger and better Monash Medical Centre, a hospital plan for our growing northern suburbs, um, Elizabeth II Hospital in Melbourne's East, um, building hospitals and boosting healthcare workers, Labour is doing what matters. So that's just what the Premier said sent to us, and we'll have copies of those links on our website. Christopher Turner is Deputy Chief Executive of CoHealth, a large provider of community health services in Victoria, particularly across the highly diverse northern suburbs of Melbourne, and Victorian Health Service of the Year. Well, uh, congratulations,
3: Chris. Thanks so much, Norman, and thanks for inviting me to today's discussion.
1: So you better explain, because community health is a bit of a Victorian thing.
3: It is, yeah. So in Victoria, we've got a unique model, one in which we view as an exemplar for primary care across the nation. So across the state, there are about 20 independent community health organisations operating from hundreds of locations. So members of those communities are supported to get well and stay well through a model that brings doctors, nurses, allied health, oral health, mental health around an individual and focusing on the outcomes that matter to them with a really strong focus on prevention and early intervention.
1: Um, And it's back... You know, to, the, to the 70s. And it's the model often followed in community controlled Aboriginal medical services.
3: That's correct. And, you know, that model that you mentioned has deep roots in, in the 70s is really one where you connect in with the community to find out what matters most to them and then really initiate those responses that they can control.
1: But well, the assumption is this makes a difference to hospital demand, does it?
3: Yeah, I think that, you know, the challenge that we're seeing in the state election at the moment is, don't get me wrong, the lure of a hospital announcement is is difficult to resist, but it plays into that entrenched narrative that healthcare equals hospital care, which we know is simply not the case. We know that well-funded hospitals are needed for really unwell patients, but if you can adequately resource community-based health services, we can really work on preventing many of those people needing those hospital admissions to begin with.
1: Now the irony is that one of these huge hospital developments that they're proposing is only a few kilometres from <laughs> one of your largest centres in Collingwood, which I'm told is falling apart.
3: It is falling apart. I mean, we look. We need places and spaces to do our work, but increasingly our facilities are really tired, at their end of their life. And our 45-year-old site in Collingwood is really an example of challenges we have with attracting investment in community health infrastructure. So the site at the moment is probably tipped in the next nine years to double the amount of clients that it's expected to see, but the leaky ceilings, uneven floors and thin walls, they just can't be patched over anymore and that building's no longer clinically appropriate. It's not confidential. Um, But importantly, we talk about investment in attracting workforces. Not only does a building like this impact care, but it's a real challenge for attracting a workforce to to come work with you as well.
1: And and you serve some of the most vulnerable um, postcodes in Victoria with a very diverse population. I mean, when you ask people what they want, do they want
3: hospitals? No, definitely not. I think, you know, when you think about the work that is done in community health, We're experts at getting in early, getting in when people are at risk or becoming unwell. And the last thing somebody wants to do when they're not yet unwell or they may have had an experience of trauma, you know, take refugees and asylum seekers who have a very different experience of authority, very different experience of the healthcare system. They want something that's based in their local community. It looks like them, it feels like them. Um, and for us, you know, we also focus on the determinants of health. So we partner with people like housing providers, education. We support people through complex systems like My Aged Care and NDIS. These aren't things that you necessarily would expect when you go into a hospital, and the hospital's not necessarily the right location for those things to, to, to happen and for people to be supported with those, those needs.
1: Now, you're just one community health service. You, I think you've got 15 locations, if I remember rightly, across northern Melbourne.
3: We so, do, yes. What's your annual budget? Uh, at the moment, we're around about $100 million. Right.
1: So, and serving what sort of population?
3: The population we serve is predominantly, the catchment would, would have well, two to three million people in them.
1: Okay, So it's a fraction of, what, of what's going into the, the hospitals. And by the way, is this a model that you think other parts of Australia could copy if indeed governments were prepared to invest in it?
3: Absolutely. We think that the community health model as it's funded in Victoria and as it's supported in Victoria is a really strong model for uh, primary care, but also when we think about the challenges that we see over time with at-risk populations and in inequity, with people becoming more unwell and more at risk of poorer health outcomes, the model that we have where we work within a community and in reach and reach out to and really support communities to access, and as I mentioned earlier. Focus on things that determine good health is definitely a model that we think should be delivered as as a standard across the nation
1: I mean well Victoria's got good form in the past in terms of community health I and mean, it 's where it started has spread a little bit, but not very much I mean Victoria's also got form in terms of hospitals i mean you've got the extraordinary Victorian heart hospital, mm. which health bureaucrats in other states just shake their head at I, I mean this is the Dan Andrews um, policy to create a heart hospital. On Monash University campus, away from the hospital, it wasn't. It's not even next to Monash Medical Centre, just a standalone heart hospital. Which you, you scratch your head about whether that makes sense, and it's going to be expensive to run.
3: Look, I think one thing that we showed throughout the pandemic is that you know community health services were embedded in local communities. Uh, experts at getting into, finding out and establishing what those needs in communities are and taking pressure off the hospital system at the end of the day. And whilst we've seen some funding um, announcements for things like primary care centres, you know, these really have a strong focus on emergency department diversion, dealing with once-off lower acuity conditions. This Previous is the federal, announcements, federal the, labor policy. And then previous announcements around community hospitals at the state level, we thought in community health that they might bring promise of being a capital saviour to our infrastructure challenges, but work to date shows that they're still planned to come under the governance and control of hospitals, and prevention and population health are peripheral to their core functions. So, you know, whilst we believe that we've got a nation-leading model in the way that community health is delivered in the state, the infrastructure is really letting down the system. And as I said earlier, this is not a neither or scenario. You know, we, we believe that there should be well-funded and good hospitals for those that are most unwell, but rather we need adequate funding across the spectrum of the health system to make the whole system work as effectively as possible. So where does general practice fit into your model? General practice is embedded in our model. So we do employ general practitioners. We do run general practices. Some of our practices are dedicated to a particular cohort. So, for instance, we do have a focus on addiction medicine. We also have clinics which are specific to refugee and primary health care, women's health clinics. But in the total scheme of things, we're a general practice which also has other elements of a person's health need covered, so allied health, oral health, mental health, as part of one, um, one, one facility which improves the opportunity for people to get a more holistic approach to care.
1: Well, fingers crossed for the next election cycle. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Norman. Christopher Turner is Deputy Chief Executive of CoHealth.
0: And it's increasingly clear that ultra-processed foods, things like candy, packaged soups, nuggets, sweetened cereals, aren't great for your health. But is that because ultra-processed foods are often high in fat, sugar and salt, or is there something in the processing? Yet another new study is pointing towards the latter, showing that higher intake of ultra-processed food is associated with a greater risk of dying from any cause. So what could be driving this? And should the level of processing be included as a warning label on foods, along with the nutritional information that we already get? I've been speaking to researcher Maria Laura Bonaccio.
4: We wanted to compare how these two ways of looking at food agree, or if they say something different in relation to health outcomes. In the case of our study, it was mortality, or because mortality and cause-specific mortality. And we found interesting stuff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about it. Let's start with the top line. What effect did ultra-processed food intake have on dying of any cause?
4: We just confirmed what has been uh, seen by others that diet rich in uh, UPF, ultra-processed food, is associated with increased risk of dying from any cause, but also from cardiovascular and specifically ischemic heart disease and cerebrovascular disease. But it was also true when we look at diet by you know, a traditional approach, that means we use the score, Dietary score that basically evaluates the nutritional content of the diet. It uh, emphasizes the consumption of fiber, vitamins, all the good things that we know we have to eat every day. And uh, in some way, it um, scores uh, in a negative way foods that are rich in saturated fat, salts, and so on. Uh, diets that are not nutritionally adequate, as reflected by this score are also associated with risk of all-cause and cardiovascular mortality. But what happened is that when we analyzed these two dimensions of, of food together, we basically saw that the risk, the excess of risk associated with the traditional way of looking at food is almost completely explained, or at least for a greatest proportion, by the fact that these unhealthy food from a nutritional point of view, are also ultra-processed.
0: Right. So there are some foods that are naturally high in saturated fats, but what you're saying is the foods that seem to confer the most risk on that measuring stick were also tending to be the ones that were ultra-processed.
4: Exactly. So what it counts most, the fact that the nutritional balance is not like, you know, ideal, optimal, or the fact that these foods are ultra processed. In our study, a greatest proportion of the risk associated with these unnutritionally diets is explained, I mean, it goes away or reduced a lot when you account for the fact that these foods are also ultra processed. While the opposite, the other way around is not true. I mean, the risk associated with the UPF is still there after adjustment for the fact that these foods are also nutritionally unbalanced. The point is that when you look at, at diets, especially in this time where all the food that we Put in the table come mostly from you know supermarkets are you know highly processed. It's important to consider when you analyze the nutritional content of foods also to account for the fact that they may be ultra processed. So researchers start to ask themselves: Is there any other explanation? There are many actually. One is that these foods are packaged in uh, mostly plastic-based package. So the plastic contains some chemicals that have the ability to migrate from plastic to food. So if you are exposed every day to huge amounts of these foods, you are also exposed in an indirect way to the contamination of these chemicals. And this is one uh, hypothesis, but there are also other hypotheses that maybe point to the fact that these foods, uh, for example, have results from a long process of deconstruction of the food matrix. It's not whole food, what you eat, but it's just a result of several processes that basically destroy the food matrix, and this make, for example, the absorption of some nutrients more available in the body. If you destroy fiber, and then you recompose, it's not the same way that having fiber in their original versions. There was a third that points to the fact that these foods are also enriched with uh, many, many food additives that you generally don't have uh, in domestic kitchens. For example, uh, artificial sweeteners instead of sugar, or you have the stuff for preserving uh, the food so they can have a long shelf life, but maybe, all these pathways interact in some way. So you have like, you know, a cocktail effect. By now it's a bit difficult to disentangle because, you know, you have several hypotheses, but none exclude the others. So maybe it's all this stuff that may contribute to what we see in a large, large population courts worldwide. Also in a population who has a relatively low consumption of this food, like Italy, you can see these huge differences in mortality. And it's very, you know, alarming, worrying.
0: What are the policy implications for this research? Because a lot of people rely on ultra-processed <laughs> foods for their food supply, especially people who are living with lower incomes.
4: Yeah, because they are cheaper indeed, yes. Well, this uh, paper that we are talking about is was conceived uh, in the framework of a strong debate at European level now, looking for the adoption of a front of pack label system common to all EU countries now in Europe uh, is an option it's not mandatory but EU wants to choose one mandatory front of pack nutrition uh, labeling system the one that has gained more support in these last years is the nutri score i don't know if you are we, we have different that. versions of it Yeah, Yeah, but, you know, the concept is very similar because also the one that you have in Australia are based on the fact that uh, just the nutritional quality is taken into account. They say this food is good for you because it's balanced from a nutritional point of view. But the point is that we are not against this system, but we just say that this information deriving from an assessment of the nutritional quality should be complemented. So our proposal at the end of the study is to place, together with the nutritional warning, also the processing warning, you know, diet, sugar, sweetened beverages, which have very low calories, they get an A, a green light, but they are ultra-processed.
0: Are you saying that what you need is to take it in concert the nutritional information, but in addition to that, the level of processing as yeah. well.
4: Yeah, you know, a double dimension of uh, considering food.
0: Maria Laura, thanks for making time for us. Thank you. Dr. Maria Laura Bonaccio is in the Department of Epidemiology and Prevention at the Neuromed Institute in Italy. But now, Norman, I want to get you to listen to something for me. Okay. There's some music by Danish composer Niels I. How does it make you feel? Relaxed? Uh, Less
1: anxious? Maybe the water sort of has an effect on my bladder, though.
0: <laughs> it's the end of a long half hour of radio. Well, if you've ever been unlucky enough to wait for treatment in an emergency department in a hospital, which most people have, you can know that they're pretty stressful places, especially if you're in pain. So a Danish nurse who's also a PhD candidate, Lisa kvist Antonsen, realised this and wanted to find a way to help people feel more calm while they were waiting for urgent surgery, for things like appendicitis, gallbladder attacks, stuff like that. I did some research and I found that music has a positive effect on both pain reduction and also relaxation and well-being. So I wanted to conduct a study to see if that also was the case in the emergency department with those patients.
1: So is that music therapy? I mean, but emergency rooms are noisy places.
0: Yes, so there's one part I haven't told you so far. The delivery method for this soothing music was actually via a pillow. In the emergency department, some of the rooms, you know, you have a patient next to you. So I didn't want to play music that would um, disrupt the other patients. I found this pillow that played music so no one could actually hear it from the other side of the room. You have to be right next to the pillow to hear the music that plays some specially composed music called Music Cure. So did it work? Yeah, well, it's a pretty small study. It was a small pilot study. They've just presented the findings at a conference called the European Emergency Medicine Congress. But they did find a statistically significant link with using the music pillar and not just increased wellbeing, but actually pain reduction.
1: Good. (laughs) headstone.
0: So that was Lisa Kvist-Antonsen, who's a nurse and PhD candidate in the emergency department at Odense University Hospital in Denmark.
1: That's the health report for this week. We'll see you next time.
3: See you then.